Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of November 19th, 2023, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. The world is aghast at the atrocity now underway at the largest hospital in bombarded and besieged Gaza City. On Wednesday, November 15th, Israeli forces entered Al-Shifa Hospital, with hundreds of patients and doctors still inside. Israel called the raid a targeted operation outside areas where patients are. Staff say troops ransacked parts of the complex, including the emergency intake and surgery departments. Israel claimed the hospital was being used as a Hamas command center, which is denied by both Hamas and the hospital staff. And this comes after days of Israeli bombing of the immediate area, including the hospital grounds. Human Rights Watch released a report just one day earlier, on Tuesday, November 14th, saying that Israel is executing repeated and unlawful attacks on healthcare facilities, personnel, and transport, and that these attacks should be investigated as war crimes. Human Rights Watch also expressed concern about Israel cutting off access to electricity, water, and humanitarian aid saying these actions are, quote, further destroying Gaza's health care system, end quote. The report calls on the International Criminal Court to open formal investigations into Israel's actions. Another large hospital in Gaza City, Al-Quds, has been surrounded by the Israeli Defense Forces, as they are officially called with hospital staff attempting to evacuate the patients. Israel is treating its claims of Hamas tunnels below the hospitals as carte blanche for bombing and raiding them, but no tunnels have yet been found at Al-Shifa, now four days after the initial raid. Some weapons turned up, which is hardly surprising in as militarized a place as Gaza, but that's about it. No evidence of the so-called Hamas command center. We've heard over and over from Israel that Hamas is using the hospitals and their staff and patients as shields, as if that makes them legitimate targets, an absolutely monstrous assertion, even if the claims are accurate. I went to the page on the website of the International Committee of the Red Cross. The Protection of Hospitals During Armed Conflicts, What the Law Says, quote, unquote. It does note some ambiguity on the question of when the protected status of hospitals can be abrogated. I read from the text, quote, Specific protection of medical establishments and units, including hospitals, is the general rule under international humanitarian law. 
Therefore, specific protection to which hospitals are entitled shall not cease unless they are used by a party to the conflict to commit, outside their humanitarian functions, an act harmful to the enemy in case of doubt as to whether medical units or establishments are used to commit an act harmful to the enemy, they should be presumed not to be so used. End quote. And Israel has certainly yet to demonstrate any evidence in this regard. Meanwhile, after having ordered an evacuation of Gaza City's populace to the south of the Strip, resulting in 1.6 million displaced. Israel has continued to also bomb the south and appears to be preparing to extend the ground invasion to the south as well. The IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, dropped leaflets over the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus on November 16th, warning the residents to get out just as it did over Gaza City in the north several days ago. Aid agencies say that deliveries of basic humanitarian goods into Gaza are now practically non-existent. The United Nations is warning that starvation is an immediate possibility. Israel's cabinet approved a plan Friday, November 17th, to send two daily shipments of fuel into the Gaza Strip. But before the war, some 500 trucks of food, fuel, and other goods were entering the Strip every day from Israel. The total number of deliveries through the Egyptian crossing at Rafah since the current war began in early October stands at some 1,000 trucks. From 500 daily to 1,000 over the course of six weeks. Israel's genocidal rhetoric continues to escalate, with the Bibi Netanyahu government now openly broaching a so-called transfer of the entire 2 million-plus population of the Gaza Strip across the Egyptian border into the Sinai Desert on either a temporary or permanent basis. An Israeli intelligence ministry document openly calling for this was leaked to the Israeli media last week. Less realistically, we may hope, a member of the Israeli cabinet broached a nuclear strike on the Gaza Strip November 5th, making outraged headlines in the Arab world. In making this call, Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage Minister Amichai Eliyahu of the ultra-nationalist Atzma Yehudit, or Jewish Power Party, said in a radio interview that there are, quote, no non-combatants in Gaza, end quote. The nuclear quip was immediately rejected by Prime Minister Netanyahu, and Eliyahu was suspended from the cabinet, but there has been much such exterminationist verbiage from Israeli officialdom. We've already noted Bibi Netanyahu's invocation of Old Testament atrocities to justify what's being done in Gaza, as well as President Isaac Herzog's October 12th comment, quote, 
It is an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true, end quote. We also note that Israeli lawmaker Meirav Ben-Ari said on the Knesset floor, October 16th, quote, The children of Gaza brought this upon themselves, quote, unquote. Contrary to this portrayal, there were actually protests against Hamas in Gaza just a few weeks before this nightmare began, though it received very little coverage, and nobody seems to have recalled it amid all this collective punishment talk. I will now do so. Thousands of Palestinians assembled on the streets of Gaza City to express their discontent with the Hamas government on July 30th. The demonstrators voiced frustrations over the territory's struggling economy, severe power outages, and high cost of living. The protest, coordinated by a quasi-underground movement, seemingly called Al-Virus Al-Saker, or the Mocking Virus, highlighted dire living conditions and high unemployment rates in the Gaza Strip, and accused Hamas of neglecting people's needs while prioritizing its own interest. The protesters also called for unity in the Palestinian government and an end to the political split between Hamas, which controls Gaza, and Fatah, which controls the Palestinian Authority in the occupied West Bank. The organizers said they intended for the protest to be peaceful. However, the Hamas police force violently dispersed the gathering, making several arrests and destroying bystanders' cell phones so no footage could get onto the internet, although I believe some did. So one wonders how many of those anti-Hamas protesters in Gaza from just a couple of months back have, over the past six weeks, been killed by Israeli bombardment. Now, once again, amid the enormity of such crimes, it almost seems petty to focus on anything so quotidian as mere hypocrisy. But nonetheless, that's what we're going to do tonight, or in this rant, because the cognitive dissonance has just become too harsh for me. One thing I need to make clear here is the distinction between calling out hypocrisy, which is legitimate, and what about whataboutery, as it's been called, using an atrocity elsewhere to distract from or relativize the one under discussion. I utterly disavow the latter tactic. Israel is crossing a genocidal threshold in Gaza and must be stopped. I state that clearly and with no equivocation. That said, some of those calling for Israel to be stopped have problems of their own. I note that on November 11th, the leaders of Iran and Saudi Arabia, regional rivals 
who restored diplomatic ties just this year, met in the Saudi capital, Riyadh, at a summit where they called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and unconditional delivery of humanitarian aid to the Strip. Now, in some obvious ways, this is a good thing. It raises the pressure on Israel to instate a ceasefire, and that is far and away the most urgent thing at this moment. And I guess it is better that the oppressive regimes in Iran and Saudi Arabia are getting along with each other and winding down their destructive proxy war in Yemen. That said, there are some things we should not lose sight of here. For instance, in June 2017, amid a cholera outbreak in Yemen, Saudi warplanes struck a hospital in the city of Kaza in Sada Governorate, where cholera patients were being treated. Several were said to be killed in the strike, and the building was destroyed. It received virtually no coverage in the Western press, but was widely covered by the Iranian media, as you might assume. And Iran, meanwhile, has been supporting the Syrian dictator Bashar Assad in his decade-long counterinsurgency war, in which regime and Russian warplanes have repeatedly bombed hospitals. I was rather appalled that Bashar Assad was invited to and attended the Riyadh summit, another step in the so-called normalization of his genocidal regime following his readmittance to the Arab League earlier this year. And I was particularly appalled that attending the Riyadh summit along with Assad was his propaganda chief, or in official nomenclature, media advisor, Buthena Shaban, who said, and I quote from the regime's official Sana news agency, quote, Since the start of the Israeli aggression on Gaza, we have been recording every day an unprecedented threshold of brutality. This is the first time that I have witnessed a war that makes hospitals, the wounded, shelters for the displaced, and reporters a primary target. The Western media continue to express its shameful support for the racist occupation army committing war crimes, end quote. Uh, really, Buthena Shaban? The first war you've witnessed in which hospitals have been made a target? Really? According to Physicians for Human Rights, there have been over 530 attacks on medical facilities by the Syrian regime and its allies, most significantly Russia, since the Syrian conflict broke out in 2011. And this happened as recently as last month, actually while Israel was doing the same thing in Gaza. While the media's eyes were elsewhere, a serious escalation of violence in rebel-held northwest Syria has forced more than 70,000 people to flee their homes over the past weeks. 
shelling and airstrikes by the Syrian government and its allies, presumably meaning Russia, have killed dozens of civilians and hit hospitals, as well as displacement camps and mosques. Aid groups are particularly worried about this new wave of flight given the onset of winter and the fact that over half of the region's more than 4 million residents have already been displaced at least once. Just, I will add, as many of those now being displaced from Gaza were already refugees or the children or grandchildren of refugees. A World Health Organization situation report dated October 11th stated that the two principal hospitals in the northwest Syrian city of Idlib were damaged in airstrikes, causing disruption of health services for more than 150,000 people. Doctors Without Borders says that hospitals in northwest Syria are on the brink of collapse and calls for urgent action to address the situation. Alas, this got zero coverage in the mainstream media in the West. I found out about it through The New Humanitarian, a specialty website for aid workers, which actually covers what the World Health Organization and Doctors Without Borders are reporting from such underreported conflict zones. That was from a report of October 13th on the New Humanitarian website. And I must note the particular irony that the Assad dictatorship has actually bombed Palestinians, most significantly at the Yarmouk refugee camp outside Damascus. Again, to shamefully little world media attention. In case you uh, missed this as it was happening, in May 2018, the Assad regime finally took full control of the Yarmouk camp, which was the last part of the Damascus area that remained under rebel control after a struggle of six years. Under a surrender deal, resistance fighters were allowed to flee to rebel-held Idlib governorate in the north, and many of the camp's civilian residents also chose to evacuate, fearing reprisals from the regime. Some 7,000 were displaced from the camp at that time, the overwhelming majority of them Palestinians, according to the UN Office for Humanitarian Affairs. And like many of the Palestinians in Gaza, these were already refugees or the descendants of refugees from the Nakba of 1948, the ethnic cleansing of upwards of 700,000 Palestinians at the hands of the nascent Zionist armies, today numbering with their descendants some 4.8 million, all considered refugees by the UN. Reports quickly emerged after the fall of Yarmouk of looting and pillaging of abandoned properties by regime troops and their militia allies, a dynamic seen throughout Syria as the regime has taken back territory over the past years and decried as sectarian cleansing, as there is definitely a sectarian caste to the Syrian war, 
with the regime and its Iranian-backed militia allies favoring the Shiites over the Sunnis, who have been driven from their homes and lands in many areas of the country, including Yarmouk. Yarmouk's pre-war population of 250,000 has dwindled to some 20,000. I am going to quote an official of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, who told Al Jazeera, speaking of conditions in the camp after months of siege and bombardment by the regime back in May 2018, quote, People are sleeping in the streets and begging for medicine. There is almost no water or electricity. Their suffering is unimaginable, end quote. Sound familiar? Exactly what UNRWA officials are saying now about Gaza. This all began about a year after the outbreak of the Syrian revolution in March 2011. At first, there was a reluctance on the part of the Palestinians of Yarmouk to get involved as Arab revolution protests mounted in Syria, as they were guests of the regime, so to speak. But finally, some protests did emerge within the camp in solidarity with the general anti-regime protests in Syria, which were meeting with harsh repression. And in July 2012, security forces fired on one such solidarity march at Yarmouk, killing at least five and setting off a cycle of funerals, demonstrations, and further crackdowns, which very quickly escalated to shelling of the camp, precipitating a military struggle for its control. Rebels finally seized control of the camp in December 2012. Now, following the basic trajectory throughout Syria at this time, the first armed rebel group that was in control of Yarmouk was aligned with the secular nationalist Free Syrian Army, the Omari Battalion. But as the war ground on, they were increasingly challenged by Islamist factions that emerged, one called Aknaf Beit al-Makdis, or Land of the Holy House, which is apparently aligned with Hamas, and then later the Nusra Front, which is aligned with al-Qaeda, and then ISIS, the so-called Islamic State, and by far the worst of the lot, of course. And in addition to fighting each other and the regime forces for control of the camp, They were also fighting an Assad collaborationist faction, the PFLPGC, or Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine General Command, which is distinct, I must emphasize, from merely the PFLP, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is the organization on the left of the PLO coalition. The PFLPGC, with its intentionally misleading name, is a splinter faction that broke off from the PFLP many years ago and accepted Assad regime sponsorship and has no significant presence or support base in either Gaza or the West Bank. Regime forces eventually encircled the Yarmouk camp, 
and in 2014 imposed a siege, leading to a rapid deterioration of living conditions, and then began a long bombardment, including with the regime's crude but deadly so-called barrel bombs, improvised incendiary bombs, big metal drums filled with flammable liquid, with effects akin to the white phosphorus that Israel is now accused of using in Gaza. Again, all of this received shamefully little international media coverage, but was very closely monitored by groups such as the Palestinian League for Human Rights Syria and the Action Group for Palestinians in Syria, as well as by Amnesty International, which in March 2014 accused Assad's forces of committing war crimes and crimes against humanity in Yarmouk. I refer you to the report entitled Squeezing the Life Out of Yarmouk, War Crimes Against Besieged Civilians, noting that there had actually been over 200 deaths caused by starvation as a result of the siege, and accusing the regime of collective punishment of the civilian population, quote-unquote. Syria is officially home to some half a million Palestinian refugees. Since the war broke out in 2011, half of these have been displaced, that is, a quarter million, becoming refugees or internally displaced for a second time. The Palestinian refugee camp at Latakia also came under bombardment by regime forces over the course of the war. And uh, now I must rise to the unpleasant occasion of calling out some of my fellow activists here in New York and the good old USA. As noted in last week's rant, on Saturday, November 4th, there was a national march on Washington for Palestine, bringing out over 300,000 people, apparently the largest rally in support of Palestine in the history of the United States. I, however, had, at best, mixed feelings about this, as it was organized by groups that have been actively abetting Putin's carnage in Ukraine, most prominently the Answer Coalition, which has also cheered on the Putin-backed Assad dictatorship in Syria. In their hypocritical anti-war rallies against the few and sporadic U.S. airstrikes on Assad regime targets over the years, Answer has actually displayed portraits of the genocidal dictator Bashar Assad. Yes, repeatedly. Most prominently, although it was hardly either the first or last time, after the April 2018 chemical attack at the Syrian city of Douma and Trump's retaliatory airstrikes, with slogans like, quote, Assad is protecting civilians. He is not bombing his own people, end quote. Yeah, this is verbatim. The photos are linked to at our website, Counter Vortex. Textbook case in the big lie technique. So all of you people who went down to D.C. on November 4th, You are marching against mass murder 
with the Bashar Assad fan club. Just saying. And I'll note, you know, that these same factions answer and its fellow tanky outfits, as we call them, enthusiasts for Russian tanks and warplanes, have since February 24, 2022, been calling for the world to betray Ukraine and echoing all of the talking points of Russian war propaganda, justifying the invasion and occupation of Ukraine. And Russia, in addition to crossing its own genocidal threshold in Ukraine with serial massacres in the areas it has occupied, has also been serially bombing hospitals. I point you to a piece entitled Echoes of Syria as Putin Bombs Hospitals in Ukraine by Dr. Hussam al-Nahas, a Syrian physician who is the Middle East and North Africa researcher at Physicians for Human Rights. This story uh, first appeared April 13th, 2022 in The New Humanitarian, and we also ran it on our site, Counter Vortex. And Syria, as we've pointed out before, was Putin's test war for Ukraine, just as Spain was Hitler's test war for his bid to conquer all Europe. I must also note that while Answer and other tanky factions are attempting to insinuate themselves into the leadership of the movement in solidarity with the Palestinians, they aren't there yet, and the biggest protests here in New York have been organized by the group Jewish Voice for Peace, which I have no problem with whatsoever. I support their efforts wholeheartedly. But I'll say it again. Joe Biden's support for Israel, as it crosses the genocidal threshold in Gaza, is a moral contradiction that weakens the position of Ukraine in its resistance against Russia's genocidal aggression. And similarly, the propaganda support loaned by some elements of the so-called anti-war leadership here in the West to Putin's genocidal aggression in Ukraine is a moral contradiction that weakens our position as anti-war forces in our urgent demand for a ceasefire in Gaza and a halt to Israel's now clearly imminent, if not already underway, campaign of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Think about it. That's all I ask. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. I will briefly note that um, this is the 200th episode of the Counter Vortex podcast. Uh, A big shout out to our producer and technical guru, Chris Rywalt, who has kept this project going, and uh, to our 60 Patreon supporters. But our stats would appear to indicate that this is but a small fraction of our actual listeners. So I appeal to you, if you appreciate this project, to sign up as a Patreon subscriber for one of our three tiers of support. $1, $2, or $5 per 
weekly podcast, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.